0: You can't always get what you want, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, well you might find, you get what you get. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network. At prn.fm. You can also get to us by phone and by iTunes and all kinds of other ways. Uh, every Monday at 10 a.m., and that's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. Since we're global, you'll have to check when it works for you. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one uh, in a day. On our archive at visionaries.podbean, that's P O D B E A N, dot com. And today I want to talk a bit more about creativity, which is kind of the theme of these uh, shows. And I recently gave a lecture to a seminar at Columbia University, and <clears throat> we looked at enemies of creativity. So we start by saying, well, wouldn't everybody be in favor of creativity? I mean, you know, (laughs) I don't have any kids, but uh, when you do, you take their watercolors and stick them with a magnet on the refrigerator, celebrating their creativity. And everybody talks about how children are creative in the education Our education is to uh, stamp out that creativity. So, we sort of think of ourselves as being in favor of creativity, but uh, real creativity brings about something new, and what does something new always usually do? And that uh, is that it does away with something old. So, for example... In in my work on creativity, I, I don't just stick to the arts, but I look at uh, art, architecture, literature, <coughs> business, technology, science. So let's just look at business, and we're all in favor of Uber. Um, well, maybe we're not all in favor of Uber because look at the way – the yellow taxicab picks on Uber. Certain cities around the world have banned Uber. And here's this, uh, you know, we built this uh, infrastructure in America. It's totally dependent on the automobile. So unless you're in a city like New York where you can walk everywhere, if you want to, you're a young person, you're going to go to a bar you get there by car. How do you get home? You drive home drunk. <laughs> That's the only way. Well, today you can call an Uber and not have to drive home drunk. So, all kinds of great things about Uber, but the yellow taxi cabs industry is not too happy about it. And what was the yellow tab? Yellow taxi cab industry, but a state-sponsored monopoly uh, with artificial state-sponsored scarcity. So taxis began with being licensed. Well, maybe, you know, are we going to – depending upon how libertarian you are, are we going to allow anybody to drive around and pick up fares, you know, including criminals and potential kidnappers and Et so, okay, so they're licensed. So the license is in New York called a taxi medallion, and those were issued by the city. I don't remember the exact numbers, but maybe originally in the 1930s, there were 75,000 of them. remember my uncle um, and during the Depression. There was no work. So he and his buddy each saved up 75 bucks, or their wives did. And for $75, you got a medallion from the city. So now you could operate a taxi. And for 75 bucks, you got a used car. And so they were, you know, one of them drove 12 hours in the day. The other one drove 12 hours at night. And they managed to, for a while, scrape together somewhat of a living. Now, those medallions recently were going for a million dollars. Well, <laughs> my my uncle had hung on to his. It might have been a good investment, but what happened was, when you no longer wanted to drive a taxi, you'd sell it. Well, the city should not have allowed that. They should have said, "You sell it back to the city for seventy five dollars," and. someone else can buy it for $75. And if there are too many people wanting to buy them, so you sign up on a waiting list. And like getting certain apartments in New York in the old days, you'd be on a waiting list. And instead, the city just let you sell it. And it kept going up in value until... They were selling for a million dollars and ordinary people couldn't afford them. So then it became a business and a business would uh, have a thousand medallions and a thousand taxis and it's probably more today, but you go in, you give them a hundred dollars and they give you a taxi for 12, 12 hours and you could do what you want. You could park it in front of your house all day or you could go around and pick up fares and – The end of the twelve hours, you brought it back, and all the money you collected, you kept. So, okay, that was a business, and so <laughs> one one of these uh, one of these whatever speculators had bought a thousand medallions at a million dollars each. That's a billion dollars, which he had borrowed from uh, bankers. And Uber comes along and suddenly they're worth half a million each. (laughs) His bank calls him up and says, oh, those medallions that you have as collateral against your billion dollars have just lost half their value. Could you send over a check for a half a billion dollars to, you know, to back up your loan? (laughs) So he's bankrupt. So it's just one of a, Million possible examples of creativity creating something new and but destroying something old. And maybe Uber's only the beginning because and there are two things we're looking at. One is electric Ubers, hopefully someday get all that pollution out of the city. And the other one is self driving Ubers. So, wow, what will that mean? And uh, two weekends ago, the New York Times Magazine section had the entire issue on self-driving cars. I'm a slow reader, so I'm halfway through it. <laughs> I'll talk about it more when I finish it up. But there are major, shall we say, socio cultural implications of this. There's one section on... Uh, sex in self-driving cars. (laughs) And uh, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But that was a big issue. Marshall McLuhan talks about that. And he talks about how to say the automobile was a horseless carriage doesn't really get it. He says it's more a front porch on wheels. And, you know, you think about what that means. And it's a way of understanding a new technology, among other things. Automobile created the, I don't know, what's the term, the adolescent. So an adolescent is someone who's old enough to drive but not old enough to have a job. Uh, and so what does that mean? What does that create? How? What's this new sociocultural category? And that's how I like to try to think about new technologies. And we can think about Uber that way. But it's a good example how creativity, bringing about something new, can also <clears throat> do in something, something old. Um, a really great source for that. And I'm going to get on to enemies of creativity, but uh, pardon my free association style here inspired by (laughs) my radio heroes, you know, like Gene Shepard, free-form radio. Gene Shepard was sort of the inspiration for a lot of the uh, classic 1960s uh, WBAI figures. But anyway, Clayton Christensen, in a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, talks about how when a new technology comes along, <clears throat> the old ones uh, really can't respond. The example, one of the examples he uses is computers. So we have mainframe computers, and then the Mini comes along. And the Mini is not a desktop computer. That's a micro. So the Mini was uh, digital equipment or decks, uh computers. They're size of about three washing machines. <laughs> Two washing machines for the computer and one for the hard drive. <laughs> you open the door, and it looks just like a washing machine in there. You lower this huge cylinder into there. That's the hard drive. And I don't know, it's five megabytes or something like that. Uh, memory has really gotten better. But... So the mini comes along, and IBM can't figure it out, and all of a sudden, universities and small corporations are buying minis, and then the workstation comes along. So the question is, why didn't DEC and the other makers of minis uh, <coughs> jump into the workstation and which was quickly followed by the by the desktop computer apple etc and then the pc and the answer is you know had been uh, they were stupid and so what the brilliance of what clayton christensen did was to closely analyze what happened and figure out no they weren't stupid they were doing the logical thing so deck had uh, a uh, huge markup on their computer, like, I don't know, 80%. And they had these high-end customers clamoring for the next generation. It wouldn't make sense for them to divert their energies into making desktops, which were toys. Their customers had no use for them. They had tiny markups because the market quickly got competitive. And they they couldn't do anything serious or anything that their customers needed. But the PCs were made, (laughs) desktop PCs, were made with standardized components that kept getting cheaper and kept getting more powerful. And the key one being, of course, the CPU or main chip that Intel kept investing on making better and better and uh, one day, that uh, capability of that CPU chip uh, surpassed the capability of the computer that DEC made like the VAX. My school got a VAX. And suddenly, why pay a million dollars for a VAX? when your desktop computer was approaching that kind of power, and deck just disappeared all of a sudden. Uh, actually, it wasn't all of a sudden. They struggled. They were bought by Compaq, uh, on and on, and eventually by Hewlett-Packard. But they were done in really quick. So uh, that's an example of how creativity can be destructive. Anyway... Uh, in looking at creativity, I usually begin uh, talking with my students about uh, a time we call Wahappen. So, about 250 years ago, something happened. If we go back 250 years, you know, 200 to 300 years, it uh, varies. But if you looked at London, Paris, Rome, <clears throat> you looked at Europe, and – They were, you know, nothing to write home about. Uh, London, Paris, Rome in 1750 were really dumps. And the, you know, they were just starting to build some monumental architecture, but nothing, you know, no sewers, uh, not that big a population. And if you compared them with, Uh, Ancient Rome, 300 A.D., uh, they, you know, ancient Rome, 300 A.D., far surpassed them. So if you make a graph of the world, population, affluence, um, total affluence, per capita affluence, it doesn't really get very far. It maybe slowly goes up. Here and there it goes down with the fall of Rome things like that. But it's kind of bumping along with maybe 3% growth at various times for thousands of years. I mean, London in 1400 was nothing compared to ancient Thebes in ancient Egypt uh, in 1500 BC. So 3,000-year uh, difference there. Nothing happening. We get to uh, the late seventeen fifty, late 1700s. All of a sudden, we get a curve that starts going straight up. And <clears throat> population, wealth, technology, per capita affluence just takes off. And we're still in the midst of that. We've seen somewhat of a slowing down in Western Europe and America in the past 40 years. But it's still on a, you know, India has taken off. China has incredibly taken off. What has been going on for the past 250 years? And uh, two things. One is I think that it's the Freeing of the creativity of the individual person. That's the whole thing. There's a whole bunch of books uh, speculating about this, looking at this, uh, discussing this, but really that's what they're zeroing in on individual creative freedom. And it's important, I think, to identify it because I think that it's fragile. That it's in danger of uh, stopping; that we could uh, we could stop it. And so, um, if we look at, the, I mean, you know, again, as I began the show, I don't think that there's a uh, conti- there's a shall we say uniform and unanimous favoring of individual creativity. It's, in fact, been continually under attack and a whole 20th century of attack. So, in the uh, 1910s and 1920s, uh, we see the really concerted attacks on capitalism, individuality, and nationalism. And uh, there's, you know, of course, communism continually attacks them but one of the sources of those attacks was world war 1 which was pretty horrible uh i mean really dumb where europe you know, wiped out wiped itself out and one of the so you know europe was looking what was the cause of this and they said oh capitalism individuality and nationalism Well, no doubt uh, nationalism and capitalism certainly played a role, the the large arms makers and all that. But individualism, creativity, individual freedom, well, that's what they blamed. And so if you look at the manifestos, uh, as a book that we use in uh, my teaching programs and manifestos on 20th century architecture. And the modern architects, starting 1900, tended to write these manifestos inspired by, you know, political manifestos. We condemn all of the bad guys. We assert uh, all of our good stuff. Uh, That's the tone in which they were written. And we find, to an extent that actually shocks us today— A, attacks on individuality, individual creativity and freedom. Uh, Now, how could architects uh, who are artists be attacking creativity? Well, that was the fad, so they all joined in. And particularly Europeans were advocating everybody should live in white boxes, you know, uh, prison cells. Of, of uniformity, and 1930s saw so the National Education Association, who um, dominate our education to this day, Teachers Union, uh, are attacking, again, individuality. They said, in the future, work will be in groups, so education should suppress the individual and promote groups. And we see this um, – talk about it later, but something – it's called this curious gregariousness. All the kids have to work together in groups. We have to – and for – you notice that um, rich people see to it that their kids get the individualistic opportunities in high-end prep schools. But in the public schools – Everybody's encouraged to work in groups. In the 1940s, we saw the um, fascination with the antihero. So, Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Yes, there's things about Willie Lohman individually that he did uh, and his son did uh, that led to their condition, but it's also, you know, how the community is not supporting him. Here he is; he devotes the best years of his life to his company. He's a, a terrific salesman, but then when he no longer has the contacts, um, uh, his company throws him out, and he doesn't have an adequate pension. This is before social security, and so he's he's done in by the fact that his community won't support him and Then, in the nineteen fifties, we really see it take off, and uh William H Wright wrote writes a book called "The Organization Man." I remember nineteen fifty nine I'm sitting in a steady hall or a reading room at college. I I just started college in 59, and I'm sitting there just finishing the organization, man. I read, maybe I should read that thing again. I'm going to look up and see uh, if there's an audio book. I can't read anymore. (laughs) I sit down in bed in the evening, and uh, I have a choice. You know, I can can read uh, the rest of I mentioned the New York Times Magazine section issue on self-driving cars. I can finish that or I can watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory. (laughs) And I end up watching a rerun of Big Bang Theory. I just love that one where Penny becomes addicted to video games. (laughs) Uh, So William H. White talks about how businesses organized around the collective rather than the individual, and that uh, one should serve an organization as preferable to advancing one's individual creativity. And then in the last chapter, I remember exactly where I was when I was reading it, that education su- should suppress the individual. So <laughs> the idea was that everybody is to work in organizations, uh, that's the corporation of the future and that our education has to train us to do that. And interestingly, if we look at uh, the IBM of the 1950s and 60s, it wasn't uh, Apple. It wasn't Intel. It wasn't these Silicon Valley um, new uh radically transformative corporations, you know, new companies, startups, but rather these big organizations, uh, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, IBM, etc. And they had not yet been disrupted by our new world. And I'm all in favor of that disruption. I mean, you know, should we buy a – I don't want to say crummy, but a less than adequate car to support some big organization that will not allow innovation? It took 10 years for Detroit to install uh, cup holders. (laughs) It was like, when will they give us a cup holder? And, well, it just took layers and layers of committees, years and years of discussion and, you know, struggling to give us a cup holder. Um, I don't drink coffee in my car, so it's not a big deal to me. But I do remember I was at a, an auto show at the Javits Center in New York. And it was getting time to get a new car. You know, my 68 Chevy Chevelle was now 20 years old, and uh, uh, so it's time to buy a new car. And maybe I, I'd like to buy a car with anti-lock brakes. You know, I visit my parents in Connecticut. It's hilly. It used to snow in those days. You'd be going down the hill, and you hit the brakes, and you suddenly you're sliding sideways down the hill. So... You know, you're you supposed to tap your brakes to do that. Well, anti-lock brakes use a computer. You just jam them on as hard as you can, and the computer taps them automatically So they, as long as they're – so they won't lock up. So it's called anti-lock brakes, and there are all kinds of stuff like that on our cars today. But uh, only the expensive Japanese cars and German cars had anti-lock brakes. Uh, And maybe the top of the line uh, Detroit cars. But if you wanted to buy a Ford or a Chevy, you couldn't get it with anti-lock brakes. And so I'm at the Chevy display and uh, there is a General Motors executive. And there are a couple of uh, other critical people like myself. And I brought it up. I said, why can't I get a... An affordable General Motors car with anti lock brakes. And this guy just lost it. You know, he was this uh, uh, GE executive who he just blew up and he said, If you want to destroy Detroit, if you want, go ahead, buy a Japanese car, do in Detroit. Well, I don't care Japanese or Detroit. I want a car with anti lock brakes. I'm doing something evil because I want a car. That you know won't slide down the hill sideways. What is this? They won't give me a car with any lock brakes. So people start buying Japanese cars, and so they go to they go to Washington and get quotas put on Japanese cars. So I can't buy a Japanese car. How about just giving me anti-lock brakes? I remember around that time, my father-in-law bought a a Chevy, and the clock was, you know, every week the clock ran five minutes fast, and he had to turn it back. Well, everybody else for years had quartz clocks that are like 100% accurate. Well, not as accurate as today's. Today my clock is tied into, you know, the world clock in Boulder, Colorado. So it's interesting. I sit there looking at my iPhone, and looking at the clock on my car, and they both click to the next minute at exactly the same time because they're getting the time not by their own internal mechanism but from satellite. Okay, great. That's an improvement. And the quartz clocks from the, from the 70s, you'd have to reset it every three or four months because it would be a second off. But Chevy couldn't even put that in their car. They had this electric clock that was running ahead five minutes every week. My father-in-law says, how'd they manage that? How'd they manage to get a clock mechanism that won't keep accurate time? No one else has that. They had to go out of their way to find that. So uh, that's the organization man for you. And then come along these disruptive corporations— where individuals exercising their creativity are bringing us something new, and so all these corporations go to Washington to get the new stuff to be declared illegal so that they can compete. So that's the 50s, the organization man. Then in the 60s, we had uh, systems thinking. So uh, McNamara, who was the... Um, Well, McNamara had revolutionized Ford. He brought systems thinking to Ford in the 1950s, uh, coming out of World War. You know, how are they going to respond to the uh, requirements of modernization of World War II? And then John F. Kennedy brought him to head the had the Defense Department, and he brings his systems thinkers. They were called the whiz kids. There's a book called The Whiz Kids. And bringing all the systems thinking, which, after having screwing up Ford, screwed up uh, the Pentagon. And these these, uh, whiz kids came into architecture, bringing systems thinking into architecture. And so... Uh, architecture depends upon creative designers. So, like in school, you go to design studio and they say, in architecture school, okay, we're going to design a library. you got a blank piece of paper. There's a little bit of information. How big is the library? How much uh, shelving does it need? Uh, Where's the circulation desk? Is there a children's reading room? But other than that, you're staring at a blank piece of paper. It's scary. You have to be able to do the thing. Other fields don't work that way. You don't, you know, if you're doing uh, a, oh, uh, well, let's say you're factoring a quadratic equation or you're factoring a quad- an equation, there are steps that you're given. You don't just take a stab at it. And so... These people got into architecture who, excuse me, didn't belong there, <laughs> couldn't do it. And, you know, they look at this blank piece of paper. They can't come up with anything Is saying, well, the, the teacher didn't give me any steps. They just said, go home and get started on designing a library. Where's that at? So uh, these people came up with something called Design Methodologies. What's the method whereby we should approach design? And there's a book. uh, I'm going to see if I can remember the name of the book. But there was a key book, and this became a Bible to the design methodology people. And these people said, well, we can create a series of steps, which if you follow these steps, you'll get your library or whatever other building. And so these are the people who couldn't design, but they came up with design methodologies. And then I went to the schools and they say, we're the design methodology people. We want to do a design methodology course in uh, in first year. And the school said, okay, that sounds cool. That's new. That smacks of computers. That's okay. We'll do that. And... So, all the schools started getting design methodology courses and nothing happened. Didn't help. So, the schools would talk to the design methodology people and they said, Well, you know, we're teaching this design methodology course, but the people teaching first year design <laughs> won't use it. We have to take over first year design. Uh, and the school said, Okay. So in about a quarter of the schools in the country, they took over first-year design. At the end of a year, nothing happened. Students still couldn't design a library. So we meet with the design methodology people and they say, well, you see, we present all the tools in first year, but it gets implemented in second year. In the second year, faculty won't, uh, won't do anything, won't have anything to do with us, so we have to take over second year. And schools said, fine. So in about a quarter of the school's design methodology took over first year, took over second year, and the students still can't design. They said, you know, you can guess where this is going. So they take over third year, they take over fourth year, and at the end of four or five years, most architecture undergraduate schools are five years You have students who are now experts in design methodology but have never designed a building because this stuff doesn't work because creativity comes from an individual, not a method. So now you have all these people coming out of school who have never designed a building, can't design a building, but they're real experts in design methodology because they've had five years of design methodology. So they go out to all the schools saying, we want to teach design methodology. And the schools say, okay, that's cool. I mean, it sounds smacks of computers. Computers are the new thing. What the hell? And so an entire generation of architecture students get ruined by design methodology until finally it's figured out it doesn't work and everybody gives up on it. Not before ruining the lives of an entire generation of architects who were only good for one thing, which is teaching design methodology. So that's what came of system thinking in the uh, in the 60s. In the 70s, we got postmodernism. So uh, These uh, French thinkers, Derrida, Deleuze, Foucault, were reacting against existentialism. Uh, Michel Foucault, you know, objected to Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, talk and lecture and essay, existentialism is a humanism, and uh, Sartre was advocating total freedom that we are in no way determined. Now, that's a tricky issue. I mean, obviously, there are ways in which we're determined. And there's a whole other uh, school of approach, which is we're determined by our background. We're determined by our ethnicity. We're determined by society. We're determined by our synapses. We're determined by our brain chemistry. And Sartre knows that, but uh on another level we're free to make choices that defines our humanism our humanity, and so this aspect of uh of existentialism uh becomes <clears throat> highly controversial, and we get the um existentialism followed by structuralism, which looks at the structures in our experience, and then the post-structuralists who challenge that. And so the post-structuralists contend there is no self. The identity we experience is a product of competing fragmentary and contradictory interactions. You might recall last week we Spoke with a colleague of mine, Michael Silver, who's an architect and uh, consciousness expert. And I asked Mike, What do you think the unconscious is? And Mike thinks, uh, holds with, I think, a, a dated approach to consciousness. And consciousness is our awareness. And he thinks the unconscious is kind of a mechanistic, computer like processes in the uh, brain that uh, pop out occasionally. And I disagree with that. I think that we are, how to put this, filled with selves. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. There isn't two, conscious and unconscious, but um, many, bazillions. All kinds of stuff is going on. Uh, there's a woman like Susan Blackmore has done a couple books in which she summarizes the theories of consciousness. And if you're into this, uh, you got you to gotta read those books. Uh, they are very thorough at not presenting a theory. No one has an adequate theory. No one knows what consciousness is. I have my theory. I'll talk about that sometime. That consciousness is... Um, intentionality. It's our making of our environment. Uh, we are subjective selves that this table in front of me is a table because, or let's say, my this chair is a chair because I have a butt. And so it's not just my mind, but my whole body uh, subjectively organizes the world. If I were an octopus, this would not be a chair, be something else and say, yeah, but it's black. Oh, yeah, right. No, black is totally subjective. Uh, Black is something going on in our brain. But it's made up out of atoms. Well, atoms are concepts. Uh, So anyway, that'll be another show. But uh, getting back to uh, consciousness, and obviously there's lots going on in there. And uh, I think that the European phenomenologist, particularly Merleau-Ponty, did a great job of looking at all this uh, European gestalt psychology was uh, getting an excellent grip on this and then got lost in post-war American behaviorism, American and British Analytical philosophy and behaviorism sort of, and we 're now just with cognitive psychology getting back to actually looking at our minds. what goes on? what do we do and one of the things I like to talk about, for example, I drive home, I commute by car, and I drive home and I, I, you know i 'm listening to a book on tape i 'm driving, and if I come into a dicey situation i 'm in a new place or the traffic gets bad, I'll turn the tape off and I'll focus on the driving. But otherwise, I'm driving on automatic. And, you know, people describe, well, I remember being at that traffic light and then I remember pulling into the driveway. I don't remember anything in between. But you didn't black out. You weren't driving dangerously. You were, you know, you were another level of your... Consciousness was operating the car, and it's one that didn't report to, uh, it didn't store an awareness level that you now uh, you now have, and even awareness. I came here by bus this morning, and I have spots of awareness. I remember the bus driver uh, say, "Where am I? We Fifth Avenue? Okay, I'm at Fifth Avenue. I don't remember Third Avenue." <laughs> I know it stops at Third Avenue but I don't remember that so and then we have all this unconscious stuff going on and again I don't mean conscious unconscious but kinds layers of unconsciousness in which you know there's stuff like I've got school tomorrow and um, what am I what am I going to do my non-western class school uh, kids are going to be doing their presentations. That's churning in, the, in 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 a level of my mind. So all this stuff is going on. So in that sense, I agree with the postmodernists that there's all this, uh, all these, whatever we want to call them, fragmentary and contradictory stuff going on. Does that constitute a self? Well, you know, yeah, self, whatever self is, it's very tricky contradictory and fragmentary but that doesn't mean that there can't be an individual who's creative but that's what we're told oh there is no author you know the part of i don't know if you how much of this um post modernism you ran into in school <laughs> uh, you know they want to pretend they never did that sort of like the new math <laughs> my my sister's kid my niece had the new math. So, I mean, an entire generation was totally screwed up in mathematics because of the new math, which is based on set theory, which none of the teachers teaching it understood and which is just the wrong way to teach math. Anyway, that was the 70s. 1980s, we uh, had—I don't know if you know who Joseph Campbell is. I'm a big fan. You hear me— talking about him occasionally on this show. I've done some shows on him. Actually, I should do one on Joseph Campbell. I'll um, I'll do a Joseph Campbell show. I did an interview with Bob Walter, who's the director of the Campbell Foundation. But I'll do a Joseph Campbell show coming up. We can look at some videos. Anyway, Campbell is a mythologist, and Campbell sees mythology very broadly. You know, it's, it's an approach to... Literature, art, fairy tales, religion. He lumps that or groups that all together in what he calls mythology. And his famous book is Hero with a Thousand Faces, which we did a show on that. It's a difficult read. Uh, Read the writer's journey first. (laughs) Or actually, no, go to YouTube and watch my introduction to Campbell. But anyway which if you just search John LaBelle, Joseph Campbell, uh, I've got about four or five YouTubes on Campbell and movies, the hero journey and introduction, et cetera. But <clears throat> Campbell was interviewed by Roy Moyers, a, um important cultural figure, and in a series of, I think it's about six uh, hour-long public television shows. The interviews went on for dozens of hours, but they were edited down to these six. Present Campbell's ideas, and the world suddenly discovered him. I knew about him. I'd been going to his lectures for more than a decade, but it was great to see them on television. And I hardly even want to say this, but Campbell is known for a phrase. I don't want to say it because it reduces a wonderful body of material to one phrase. But Campbell says, follow your bliss. Well, uh, what's controversial about that? Every speaker at every graduation ceremony uh, tells the students, you know, follow your passion. Uh, Don't go where the money is. Go what's, you know, whatever. Uh, so, Campbell says, follow you, but the culture went nuts. And right-wingers were saying, you can't do this. Everybody will take drugs and drop out. And left-wingers were saying, you can't do this. Everybody will become a banker and get rich. And uh, now, so what's the alternative? That a That the society... Right wing, according to the right wingers, left wing, according to the left wingers, should tell young people what to do with their lives. They shouldn't be trusted to decide for themselves. I mean, we've built an entire civilization on that, and it was pretty successful. And a lot of people, both on the left and the right, are trying to do that in. In the 1980s, doesn't stop, does it? We had communitarianism. (laughs) Now— I think communitarianism is kind of a, you know, gentle socialism. Everywhere socialism has been tried has led to uh, utter poverty, the latest being Venezuela. But they keep bringing it back. So maybe, you know, they figure to give it a new name. Communism gave it a bad, had a bad name, so they said socialism. Socialism developed a bad name. So now they call it communitarianism. And communitarianism is seen as, you know, more more broad than socialism. You might say socialism is an economic theory. Communitarianism is a cultural theory, a whole social and cultural theory. But communitarianism holds that we're the consequence of layers of relationships and therefore should be subject to layers of obligations and restrictions. Now, that's true. Um, it's true that Uh, Somebody who I won't name said, you didn't build that. And he was misinterpreted. What he meant was he didn't mean you didn't build that company. He said that company is dependent on things like roads, and you didn't build the roads, which is true. Uh, We all together build infrastructure that support us and our enterprises. Now, (laughs) the question is— where do we put the emphasis in other words do we build an infrastructure infrastructure meaning roads but communication systems schools uh you know stores where we can buy food the whole thing do we build that and are we as individuals here to serve the infrastructure or is the inf- do we create the infrastructure to support the individual, that what is your ultimate value? is the ultimate value that each individual should be able to identify and manifest their full potential. And we create infrastructure to help that happen. Uh, And, of course, we all have to chip in. It's called taxes. No society has ever questioned that. that. We can question how much, but I don't think anybody has ever said we shouldn't have taxes. So, communitarianism sort of wants to put its thumb on the scale in a particular direction. Today, uh, we look at education. We keep hearing, level the playing field. Now, that has a meaning. You know, if we say, help all disadvantaged students, help all—whatever term you want to use— weaker students achieve the best they can uh, i would say sure and there's all kinds of ways in which people can achieve and all kinds of things that they can achieve and they can all be different and some will become acquire many uh, degrees and become a professor and live in poverty like me <laughs> Uh, Relative to uh, a lot of other people. And some will drop out and become plumbers and get rich. Uh, So, you know, one way of life I don't think is better than another. But that our educational system should help each individual achieve their full potential, whatever that may be. But level the playing field doesn't mean that. Level the playing field implies that there are holes in the playing fields and bumps in the playing field. And you should fill in the hole and get rid of the bumps. You know, we can't have too many people achieving too much. Well, I think that's disgusting. I think that if some people have a potential to achieve a lot, we should root them on and help them achieve all they can. And if some of us are not so good in math, uh, we should get help. And we should have an education system that uh, that does both. Look at some recent books. Uh, there's a book by Sandel, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do?, Mega bestseller, most popular course at Harvard. Over a thousand people enroll every year. Does that, how do they fit? That? They have an auditorium that big? Uh, my school doesn't. It was a PBS series. And it, uh, uh, ultimately, its philosophy is communitarian. The commons should control not only what we produce, but also our creativity. Now, again, you know, what we produce, yeah, taxes. No, Nobody has ever questioned that. But, you know, uh, in France, the highest tax rate is 75%. And if you accept the Laffer curve, Laffer curve says if you tax at zero percent, you'll collect zero. Government will collect zero money. If you tax at 100%, the government will collect zero money because no one will do whatever it is you're taxing. So somewhere between zero and 100, there's an amount, there's a percent that will produce the most income for the government. And let's say that uh, 70% will produce, 75% will produce a certain amount of tax revenue for the government. And... Uh, 20% will produce the same amount because at 20%, more people will pay taxes and they'll do less to avoid the taxes and all that. Well, that's a whole other discussion, the Laffer curve. But there are people who say, well, we should tax at 80%. You say, well, wait a minute. Um, 20% will produce the same revenue. Yeah, but we want to punish those people. They're making too much money. We can't let them keep the money. Well, that's going to Well, I'm not too happy about people that, uh, you know, (laughs) have a dozen yachts. But uh, is it worth suppressing economic growth in order to punish those people? Yes. Well, that's the French idea. And then they wonder why they have 25% unemployment. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so – that's communitarianism. We can't let uh, we can't let people uh, uh, achieve too much, and then we have outliers. The story of success by Malcolm Gladwell. These are all like mega bestsellers, and Gladwell is um, uh, claims that success comes from circumstances, how and when we're born, to the ten thousand hour things. You know that uh, uh, practice. Etc. So, um, you know, the idea that there are remarkable individuals who remarkably achieve, he doesn't want to write about that. Uh, And what he writes is really interesting. I I don't disagree with it, I just don't think it's the whole story. He begins by looking at hockey players. And I don't know if I'm going to get this exactly right, but he says, yeah, ninety percent of hockey players, in professional, in um, in college, yeah, who do well in high school, were born in December. That's weird. <laughs> Is this some weird astrology thing? And no, it turns out that uh, that. <clears throat> you, let's just say you go into, I don't know, I'm not going to get these numbers exactly right, but you'll get the point. You go into first grade uh, when you turn five years old. Now, someone will be five years old in January. Someone will be five years old in December. They both go into first grade. But the person who's five years old in December is going to be a year older than the person who's five years old in January, you know, 11 months older. So they're going to be bigger, stronger, older, more mature, and they're going to do better at hockey. Uh, So, And then that difference never goes away. Those are the ones that uh, get in the A-team. They get the coaching. They get to go on the road. Uh, So, yes, when you're born – can have an effect like that. On discovering that, maybe we should ameliorate that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptional achievers. And then finally, another mega bestseller recently, The Genius in All of Us by David Schenck. And my whole problem is right there with the title. If we're all geniuses, that means nobody's a genius. And... they um, I'm the kind of person who—I just like to celebrate exceptional people. You know, yeah, Mozart put in 10,000 Hours, but he was good before the 10,000 Hours. Uh, You know, he was born that way. Maybe the born that way is part of the 10,000 Hours, that he was already listening. Both his mother and father and older siblings were musicians. So he was listening to music in the womb. So it started getting implanted. Uh, right away. But anyway, those are some of the enemies of creativity. They're with us to this day. We like to celebrate entrepreneurs. Uh, Some of us are fans of Elon Musk, but economists today denigrate entrepreneurs. So let's end with uh, uh, the book Quiet by Susan Cain, Quiet, the Power of Introverts. And she talks about the new groupthink, the insistence that all creativity comes from this curious, gregarious place. How about just going into a corner, being alone, thinking, and coming up with original ideas? So, hey, our time's up. This is John LaBelle. Our show is Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. Tune in again or log in again next week.